0: Welcome back. As you probably know, there's been a lot of conversation as of late, not just here in Alberta, but elsewhere in the country about the future of the RCMP and the future of policing in this country. Right. The talk in Alberta has been about whether we should maybe end the contract with the federal government for community policing and uh, have our own provincial police force. But I think you're, you're seeing a conversation that goes well beyond that and maybe the need to refocus the RCMP. Does the RCMP have the mandate, have the resources, have the focus it needs to deal with some of the major criminal challenges and even national security challenges like with China that we're facing right now? Well, to help us better understand what the answers to those questions are, there's a new book out uh, that takes a look at where there have been successes and failures in these areas and what needs to change to make the RCMP the police force we really need it to be. Uh, it's called Undercover Inside the Shady World of Organized Crime and the RCMP. Uh, it's uh, an expose. It takes readers deep into the heart of the criminal underworld, unveiling the covert operations of the RCMP based on the author's remarkable 34-year career with the force. Gary Clement is a distinguished veteran of the RCMP, former RCMP superintendent, and as mentioned, is author of the new book out this week, Undercover Inside the Shady World of Organized Crime and the RCMP. Gary, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much, Rob, and I look forward to having the conversation.
0: Yeah, this is a very important conversation. You've got some some unique uh, insight in, into all of this. What what prompted you, first of all, to to you know finally sit down and, and lay all this out, share these stories, and, and share your insight and
1: experience? Well, what prompted it? And I guess I can use what Robert Kennedy said, and, and that's basically every generation inherits a world. It never made, and as it does so, it automatically becomes a trustee of that world for those who come after. In due course, each generation makes its own accounting to its children. And when I look at what's happening right now in this country, I look at we're becoming a uh, go-to place for transnational organized crime. I look at how China is uh, basically in a disruptive uh, war with uh, North America and and all you have to do is look at the uh, loss of lives from the fentanyl crisis. The precursors all come out of China and go into Mexico. And if you look at that, we've lost over 311,000 people since 2021. Um, and start looking at the economic loss, uh, potential earning power of those individuals, the fact that the military in Canada can't even fill all the positions, Um, You know, I think it's time that Canada wake up. We need to get a handle on this and uh, look at ways that we can improve. And that includes creating, I think, uh, fully defined new federal force that can take on these complex investigations.
0: Yeah, and I mean, part of what you talk about in the book is, you know, where, where things have worked and where they haven't when it comes to taking on these kinds of major policing tasks. Is the RCMP, as it stands now, are we asking too much of it? Is it, is it able to focus on these big issues?
1: I think you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, I look back when I started in 73, you know, computers didn't exist. And basically, it was boots on the ground type investigations. We're dealing in a complex world today, far more complex, I think, than any of us realize would happen so quickly. Um, and the RCMP, because it's trying to be all things to all people, just can't keep up. It's not that the desire isn't there. It's not that there's some not good resources. Uh, that's the farthest from the truth. But the reality is, it's time. And I know I was on a committee and, and uh, did a presentation. Alberta saying it's time that they looked at a provincial force. And and the only reason I say that is that I think Canadians have to realize that we've got to have a very sophisticated investigative federal agency that's capable of taking these investigations on. We are falling out of, uh, I guess, respect from a lot of our allies because we haven't been able to do it. We need to look at our legislation. We've got some huge weaknesses in our legal processes. Um, and all that does is pave the way for organized crime and and uh, individual countries like China. And we've got to get a handle on this.
0: So would that mean something akin to like a, a Canadian version of the FBI, or, or would it be different?
1: No, I think we need to look at something like an FBI slash DEA so that... Mm-hmm can take on these sophisticated investigations. And where the dilemma falls in, and it happened during uh, the course of my career, um, the vast preponderance of positions are in uniform, are contracts, and I think the public has to understand they're exactly that. These are contracts. Um, Ontario and Quebec have been able to manage their own policing because it is a provincial responsibility. And it's not a case of putting down the rcmp that's not the intent the intent is that we have to get a handle on federal policing and because we haven't provinces are suffering from the lack of having a federal a strong federal uh force uh capable of taking these transnational crimes on and i i think we know what's happening we're, we're seeing uh, uh various gang wars today like we've never seen before we're seeing increase in weapon smuggling, we're seeing an increase in drug trafficking, increase in human trafficking, and all of these are, are transnational and internationally arranged. That takes uh, investigators that are dedicated, full-time, long-term, to, uh, in order to be efficient and effective.
0: We talk about the threat from China, and that's a big focus right now. And certainly that's, you know, that's preoccupying, I think, a lot of time and resources on on the part of the the RCMP and the national security infrastructure. But, I mean, how similar is that to to dealing with organized crime, whether it be, you know, national or transnational? What's different or unique about a a challenge like China and what they're doing here in Canada?
1: Well, a lot of what they're doing is is criminal in nature. It's espionage, and that's criminal in nature and takes... Again, an investigation, we have to show that we're capable of taking this on. And we haven't for years. It's been overlooked. Our government, sadly, has overlooked it and seen it as uh, an economic benefit to stay in tight relations with China. We're seeing right now, and and I don't think a lot of people recognize this, but we're seeing right now at uh, universities in Toronto, uh, Ryerson and York, that they're still... Engaged with the military doing uh, st- or uh, uh, creating various technology that the Chinese will take back and use in their military. And, you know, we've got to stop doing this. We we sat back and watched Nortel get, uh, you know, the only way I can describe it is all of our technology stolen out of Nortel, and as a result of it went bankrupt. We now are you know, allowing uh, China to use our universities and our, you know, our brain power to create the uh, basically a potential weapon against the, the democracies around the world. Um, and, and I don't think people realize how serious it is. If you were to ask anybody in the Chinese diaspora here in Canada, they will tell you that uh, the Chinese government has agents are trying to control them. They try to dictate to them where they will vote and how they will vote. Uh, those type of things we need to get a handle on. It's serious.
0: Yeah. So how do we do that? I mean, it, part of it's about changing the structure of the RCMP and the focus of the RCMP, as you mentioned. But are there any other obstacles that we need to clear? Are there tools that need to be refined or, or even created? Like what what
1: needs to change? Well, I think we need to have a, uh, a registry, uh, for fo- a foreign registry of nationals in this country. Um, I think we need to look at our legislation. What I would like to see is very similar to what they did in the Cullen Commission that only went part way. I would like to see a, uh, a committee formed and a gap analysis with a firm commitment of government to do something about it. We we have sat back for far too many years and the government has ignored The the plight of of how organized crime is is impacting this country and not put the appropriate resources, both financial uh, and uh, allowing for the hiring. Um, So if we were to do a full gap analysis with the commitment of government to do something, I honestly think we can get a partial handle on it. We'll never solve the whole problem, but at least we won't be seen as the Maytag of the North as we are today.
0: As mentioned, your book explores some of the successes and failures over the years. As we look at some of the challenges we're facing today, what are some of the successes we can look to where, you know, we can try to build off what has previously
1: worked? Well, if you go back, uh, you know, we used to have very infected law enforcement or uh, drug enforcement in this country because the units were large and very dedicated when we created the integrated proceeds of crime units uh, and the, the money that was allotted to it was what we called fence funds. In other words, it had to be used uh, for the purpose of the integrated proceeds. And what that was was a combination of RCMP, municipal, provincial, uh, tax authorities, customs authorities, and prosecutors all all housed in one location. And we had accountants, and we had, uh, uh, you know, management of resources that were seized. They were starting to be effective. And sadly, the uh, money dried up. The government uh, allowed it to grow back into the uh, overall RTMP budget. Uh, that created uh, what the circumstances still exist today. The conflict, or not conflict, but the priority of contract versus federal. And it was always easier to steal from federal resources to keep the contracts full, which they have an obligation to do. And I forget what the numbers are, but there's, I think, six or 700 positions uh, that have been lost over the years in federal policing. And I would suggest that number should have been, you know, a couple thousand increase, not a decrease. And when you look at complex investigations, um, when I started out, Five investigators probably could do a very complex investigation with no problem. That same case today with all the requirements of court and disclosure and uh, the need to get a speedy trial, we're probably today looking at 25 investigators to do the same case. That's where the dilemma is coming in, and that's why we are not effective anymore.
0: Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting, too, because there's a lot of conversation happening around uh, around the issue of community policing. You know, Alberta's been having a conversation about whether we, we should have a provincial police force and that that RCMP contract policing. We're seeing that conversation elsewhere. We saw the failings, you know, in, in Nova Scotia around the, the massacre there in April of 2020. So are, are a lot of these things, do you get the sense that that there's some momentum here for change?
1: I think there is. If you look at what just happened in Surrey, um, you know, and I logged the government. I realize it's a a hard pill to swallow for the RCMP. But I go back to when I went out to Langley in 1973. They were talking men of a regional lower name police service. You know, here we are 40 some years later, and it's now just starting to get a bit of momentum. Um, I think it's long overdue, and we need to look at it. You know, you take a look at yourselves in Calgary and Edmonton, you're not small cities anymore. You're growing in leaps and bounds. You've got a very effective Edmonton police service. You've got a very effective Calgary police service. Mm -hmm. Um, Other areas are growing, uh, and there needs to be, I think, uh, a a provincial-type police service in the municipalities, large regional forces where the government of the day or the municipality of the day has a little more say in how the policing is done. I think that's effective. When I was chief of police of Coburg for four years, you know, I saw how reporting to a local board deals with local issues. And uh, even though there's a set of standards that have to be met, I think there is a value in doing that.
0: And there is one other issue, too, I wanted to ask you about. I mean, the whole question of political control or political independence, is the RCMP too close to the government? Does, does that need to change?
1: Absolutely. I, you know, I state in the book, you know, it's going to stay in the way it is. It's got to be an independent board uh, that the commission reports to and not at the will of of the prime minister of the country. I mean, the RCMP has become politicized, and I think that has also impacted the effectiveness. I mean, the commissioners have wanted to stay in, stay in their position, and so unfortunately, at some points, I have to tell, tell the government that should never happen. Operations should be unfettered and independent of any government body. Well, the book, it's out this week, as
0: mentioned, it's called Undercover Inside the Shady World of Organized Crime and the RCMP. Gary Clement, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this.
1: Thank you very much.
0: At the top in this hour, though, I want to talk about Canadian refineries. How many are they are? How much products uh, we're refining each year? Where those inputs come from? Where the uh, end product is going? You know, there's often a lot of interest in these subjects. You know, is it applies to gasoline prices or is it applies just to jobs? You know, the debate around pipelines, you know, there have been some have argued that by exporting bitumen, we're exporting jobs. Why don't we refine more of that bitumen here at home, which would require us having more refineries? When we say higher gas prices, especially what we saw last year uh, in spring and into summer of 2022, we saw oil prices rise, but we really saw gasoline prices rise uh, because those refinery margins really spiked. There was a lot of demand and there were some huge bottlenecks and just not enough refining capacity. The price of gasoline really soared. Again, the point was made, well, maybe we should have more refineries. But under more normal circumstances, would that make sense? What does the refining market look like under more normal circumstances? Are we even in normal circumstances at this point? Anyway, there's an interesting overview of the Canadian refinery market up at commoditycontacts.com which is uh, the website of our next guest, commodity analyst, Rory Johnston, joining us on the line here this afternoon. Roy? great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program.
2: Thanks for having me back, Rob.
0: Yeah, I know we've spoken with you through some of these more extreme situations like what we saw, you know, in, in June of last year with those uh, margins just skyrocketing. But how normal, quote unquote, normal are, are the circumstances right now?
2: I would say very not normal. I would say, you know, for most of my career, refining has been... It played second fiddle to what was happening in the broader crude market. Um, the world was generally structurally oversupplied uh, re- oil refining capacity, which meant that generally uh, margins uh, for things like gasoline and diesel were reasonably stable and, and within a you know a relatively normal band. Um, what we do for measuring this is we measure the refining margin or so-called crack spread between uh, the price of a barrel of oil or crude oil and the price of a barrel of say gasoline or diesel in normal times that crack spread for gasoline and diesel is somewhere between generally 10 and 20 dollars a barrel that was where it stuck around for most of the decade prior to covid after covid though and as you were mentioning in in your intro uh last year those blew to exceptional levels uh for diesel in particular we saw upwards of 70 dollars a barrel crack spread and gasoline was 60 or $70 as well. So when, you know, while global Brent prices were sitting at 130 you and I and, and Canadian families all across the country were paying nearer the equivalent of $200 a barrel uh, product at the pump. And I think that's a big challenge. And, and, and the reason for that is, as with many of these supply chain challenges we've seen over the past couple of years, is COVID. Um, as I was saying there, you know, we had been structurally oversupplied for so long uh, there wasn't a tremendous amount of interest in building new facilities uh, or upgrading and maintaining facilities, particularly in North America, uh, where you had very stringent environmental controls, uh, kind of environmental burden. Um, so what, what, we did, what was happening was you basically, through COVID, came in, destroyed gasoline and, and, and product demand, right. um, and all these refineries had to make a decision of, you know, are we going to keep these online? And many of them said no. Uh, At the same time, a lot of the refineries that were supposed to come online in Asia and and the Middle East were all delayed by those same supply chain bottlenecks. So what what happened, we just basically had way too little supply of refining capacity, and demand jumped back far faster than everyone expected. And that's what brought us those crazy refining margins last year.
0: So what does the capacity picture look like now, and and what does that mean in terms of these margins or spreads?
2: Yeah, so I mean, things have gotten better year on year, thankfully. Uh, but we're still well not out of the woods yet. As an example, right now, uh, you know, as I'm looking at my screen, the margin for diesel, and again, remember that, you know, 15 to $20 a barrel is normal for this uh, pre-COVID. You know, it's sitting at right now about $36 a barrel. And in only a month or two ago, it was as high as $55 a barrel. Gasoline has actually come down a good amount at so $10 a barrel right now, sounding pretty normal. But this summer, it was as high as 40 again. Uh, and, and gasoline demand in particular is very seasonal. So I think mm-hmm. the current concern now is that we're going to see this boom-bust cycle with gasoline, which actually is harder for, in many ways, for refiners because when you have really low cracks presence on that gasoline, it means you actually have to charge more for diesel in order to actually break even on your product. So what we're seeing in many cases is this kind of you know, unbalanced barrel where, where all of the normal relationships between the values of the different products kind of is breaking down.
0: Well, in terms of you know, Canada's capacity, and, and as I point out, it's, it's often argued that maybe Canada should have more refineries, but that's easier said than done. But um, whether that's true, though, um, you know, as you point out in your piece today, that uh, you, know, you can uh, nearly count the number of oil refineries from coast to coast on two hands. So what, what does our market look like?
2: Yeah, so in Canada, we have fewer than 20 refineries generally, um, and, and it depends on how you define a refinery exactly, but the number is kind of in that 14 to 18 uh, facilities level. And this is, you know, defining as something that takes crude oil and outputs some kind of usable product out to the market. But that's come down considerably over the past couple of decades. You know, as early, you know, as recently as 1980, we had 35 refineries across the country, so more than you know, double what we have right now. And I think the, you know, what's been particularly remarkable during that period is while we actually have had refineries close, the others have generally expanded, and and while we have the number of refineries in the country, capacity has stayed really, you know, shockingly stable at just shy of two million barrels a day.
0: So well, let's talk about, you know, the the the. I guess, the, the regional aspect of this. So uh, where do we see these uh, refineries?
2: Yeah, so, it, you know, it, it's best to think of Canadian refining in, in terms of three big regions. Uh, obviously, where, where uh, you are in Calgary, Western Canada possesses one of the largest, uh, the second largest refining hub in the country. And that is, you know, what. And, and many of these regions are refined in many cases by where they get their crude oil from. The West obviously has the huge bounty of Canada's conventional and oil sands upstream production to feed those refineries. And what you see is those refineries are entirely satisfied by domestic crude. Specifically in the West, you actually have 60 percent of the crude consumed in Western refineries is so-called synthetic or upgraded bitumen, uh, synthetic crude oil, which in many cases is actually that process was designed specifically to actually help satisfy and provide more palatable barrels for Alberta and Saskatchewan refineries. Uh, when you look across the country, though, uh, you know more than half of Canada's refining capacity is not in the west. It's in the much larger consuming regions in the east. Mm-hmm. I'm in Toronto, and Ontario is the second major um, major uh, refining region to focus on. And what defines that is that it still actually get, you know, Ontario gets a lot of its crude oil from the west through particularly the Enbridge Mainline system, as well as a little bit of crude coming in from the United States. The final region is, is Quebec and Atlantic Canada, where the major defining area of that region is that you have access to the kind of, uh, you know, the Atlantic basin crudes, tanker imports and the, and the St. Lawrence uh, Seaway, so you actually have a much larger proportion of imports. Now, when we have a national debate in this country about pipelines and self-sufficiency of oil, yeah. usually this is where facilities in the East come up, and, most, and I think the, the most notable refinery of this kind is actually the Irving Oil Refinery in St. John, New Brunswick, um, which gets all of its crude, essentially, from imports because there are no major pipeline connections. Uh, So when you hear Canada importing Saudi and Nigerian oil, it's typically going to that facility or, previous to that, the come-by-chance refinery in Newfoundland and Labrador, which has actually since closed.
0: Uh, By the way, and is that where where home heating oil comes from? I know that's been the focus recently because of the carbon tax exemption. So where does the home heating oil come from?
2: Yeah, I think that I actually started the piece with a little bit of a hook about that. And I think one of the things that's interesting is when people think home heating oil, I think they often think more just like fuel oil, the stuff, kind of stuff that goes in ships. But with all of the environmental regulations and kind of standards that are in place now, home heating oil, home heating oil is essentially diesel, um, which is when you actually look at the the contract for trading diesel in New York Harbor, it's actually HO1 or heating oil one. It, you know, the, the product is very, mm-hmm. very similar. Um, So that actually is, you know, I was mentioning earlier, you know, while generally refining margins have come down slightly, diesel and heating oil is actually where you continue to see the largest kind of pressure in the market, which I think makes sense given that that's where, uh, you know, the governing Liberal Party found, you know, felt the, uh, the greatest pressure to ease cost burden on that fuel in particular.
0: Interesting. So when it comes to uh, Canada's overall capacity, because as you point out that, you know, more recently refineries, the refining industry, they benefited from these margins, from these crack spreads. But uh, there's a lot of risk in adding new capacity. It takes a long time, as Alberta saw, you know, firsthand with the, uh, you know, the construction of the sturgeon refinery. So on the question of whether Canada needs or could use more capacity, how, how do we answer such a question?
2: So I think the challenge here is, I would say generally, I think the one thing we really need to prioritize is keeping our refining fleet as it currently exists today, healthy and flexible, because I think even as we transition to, you know, renewable fuels and electric vehicles, et cetera, you know, that entire process is going to be fueled by fossil fuels along that way. And I think we need to maintain and and keep kind of secure that system in the interim. But in terms of You know, when people talk about additional refining capacity, it's usually discussed in the context of Alberta in particular. Um, And I think the challenge here is that it's easier typically to ship crude oil than it is to ship products. So the big challenge is obviously pipeline access, et cetera. You know, generally it's easier to build one big crude pipeline than it is to build multiple different pipelines for diesel and LPG and gasoline, et cetera. So I think that's the, one of the big differences is, is, um, is focusing on the thing where Alberta has a comparative advantage, which is crude production. And as I was saying at the beginning, many of these refineries are actually co-located to major demand centers rather than, rather than kind of production centers. And I think that's why this is going to continue to be an issue. That said, um, you know, this is, I think this is still generally a pre-COVID uh, mindset in many ways. And obviously what we have seen is the Sturgeon refinery is a great example I think there was a lot of kind of hand-wringing around the uh, delays and expenses of that project, but it's actually received a massive windfall in many cases because it, it, it actually typically processes bitumen into diesel, and diesel is actually mm-hmm. the market that continues to be the tightest. So I don't think when anyone was, you know, planning uh, the economics of the surge and refinery, they, they, they thought that $70 diesel margins were even a remote possibility in the planning process. And we've spent a lot of the past 18 months, well above that kind of historical norms for diesel diesel markets.
0: Yeah. Much more, as mentioned, commoditycontext.com. Rory, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: An interesting wrinkle in the ongoing debate around tobacco and nicotine policy in Canada. A coalition of health groups and anti-smoking advocates coming together for a press conference today urging the federal government to take... Urgent action uh, following decision that was made back in the summer by Health Canada, the approval of flavored nicotine pouches uh, being sold uh, under the brand Zonic. Now, this is being billed as a nicotine replacement therapy. This was approved under the Natural Health Product Regulations. Uh, this is a product that uh, includes, as mentioned, flavored uh, flavored products, uh, and and I guess the you know the kicker here the, the big point to emphasize is that uh, those under 18 uh, could legally purchase this. So how is that the case? Joining us to talk more about this is Rob Cunningham, uh, Senior Policy Analyst at the Canadian Cancer Society. Rob, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program.
3: Thanks, Rob. Good to be with you.
0: Okay, so first of all, tell us more about this, this product. What is this? Well, it's a small little sort of sachet pouch. No
3: tobacco, but it contains nicotine. Okay. Uh, that, that's put in the mouth, and it's a new product category for Canada. It's been sold in the United States, uh, in Europe, you know, for some years. It's you know, increasing in popularity among youth, and so when we see this introduction in Canada, uh, you know, approved um, you know, in a process similar to what the process was, you know, many years ago for nicotine patch and nicotine gum, um, and you know, it can be sold uh, legally to children of any age you know, clearly we're very concerned.
0: Okay, so how, how is it that it, it gets around some of the laws that exist? Like Alberta has rules in place. I imagine other provinces do when it comes to the sale of flavored, teen, uh, flavored nicotine products. So what's different about this?
3: So federal and provincial laws apply to tobacco products. They apply to vaping products, but they don't apply to other types of nicotine products. So there's a regulatory gap here. You know, it was a, you know this product was approved for sale but there's not the normal regulations we'd see for tobacco and vaping, whether it's, you know, Alberta or or nationally. Um, And Imperial Tobacco is moving quickly, marketing aggressively, you know, promotions in retail and convenience stores that kids can get into, social media, Instagram. If they wanted, they could put uh, promotions on television, on billboards across from schools. Uh, We simply, and they're using lifestyle advertising, with young people in social settings, you know, the classic type of lifestyle advertising we saw for cigarettes for so long. So this type of, uh, you know, marketing simply shouldn't be happening. Uh, They do want to have a new generation of kids uh, that are hooked on nicotine. And so what we've urged is that Federal Health Minister Mark Holland and Associate Health Minister here Sachs move quickly uh, to either put this product as a prescription-only product, you know, would continue access, or to temporarily suspend sales uh, until the regulatory gap is closed. And the Minister of Health has the power to do that under the natural health product regulations.
0: Okay, so this is a nicotine replacement therapy, similar to, as you mentioned, uh, other products that exist like nicotine gum. But is is there any difference between how nicotine gum uh, has been approved and is sold and this? Well, I mean, the technical
3: processes might be similar, but the but what is different is that, you know, nicotine gum, nicotine patch have been on the market for, for decades, but there's no indication that youth are using them and getting addicted, whereas in other countries, youth are using uh, nicotine pouches. Also, what's different is that this is the first time that the tobacco company is engaged in this area. And Normally, nicotine gum, nicotine patch is pharmaceutical companies. And the history of the tobacco industry uh, we know is terrible, you know, in terms of, um, you know, targeting youth. Uh, so I think there are some fundamental differences. This is a tobacco company; they don't want quit, people to quit smoking. You know how, how credible is that? And you know this is, these are you know uh, you know nicotine gum, nicotine patch, or you know these type of nicotine replacement therapy products are supposed to be the, you know, for people to quit smoking, as opposed to getting non-users to use them and to grow the overall nicotine market, which would benefit Imperial Tobacco quite a bit.
0: Right. But we, and I mean, you know, the collective we, or even the two of us here, we, I mean, we do want people to to stop smoking. Aren't nicotine replacement therapies one way to achieve that?
3: We do want people to quit smoking. And we're not proposing to ban these products, but if you could uh, put them on prescription only, uh, you could still have access. And more and more provinces are allowing uh, pharmacists and, and nurses to be able to prescribe these in addition to doctors. So you can have widespread access. But we need to do something to protect youth um, and to protect the public in general. This is the first time in more than 100 years that it is legal to sell a nicotine product from a tobacco company, legal to sell to children. And, you know, we know that for a retail store, if they do sell to a teenager, uh, there's not going to be any offence, no, no charges, no fines, and that's just an opportunity, uh, you know, for kids to, to buy these and, and get hooked.
0: Right, so what's the regu- regulatory change that, that we need here, do you think?
3: Well, um, Section 19 of the Natural Health Product Regulations gives the Minister of Health the ability to suspend the product uh, immediately, and that would give an opportunity uh, you know, for provinces and the federal government to catch up, uh, you know, to have a regulatory framework in place. One thing, there's one province, Quebec, that has required these products to be in pharmacies only. That is something that the Alberta government could do. Very quickly, to help get some control. It's not enough because it still be legal to sell uh, to people under under the age of eighteen. Um, but, but there is there is there are mechanisms that could be done uh, federally under the National Health Product Regulations that are uh, very easy administratively. They can be quick, um, and you know that you don't need to have a, a long process for regulatory change. The other thing is that we we've asked that there be a moratorium on the approving of any more nicotine products in this area until the regulatory gap is closed.
0: But then the, the, the broader change you touched on, so any replacement therapy, any nicotine replacement therapy that contains nicotine, that that should require a prescription?
3: For now. Um, you know, until, if, it's, if it's new, I mean, we're not suggesting that the existing nicotine patch, nicotine logenge, uh, nicotine gum be on a prescription. Um, you know, that is, those seem to be going well. But if it's a new category of product, you know, we need to have, uh, either the regulatory landscape changed so you can't sell it to kids. Um, or, I mean, you have a prescription on a, on a short term basis or, 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 you know, or, or, you know, or longer term nicotine gum initially was on a prescription basis in Canada. Now it's on a non-prescription basis. And, you know, if, if we want to be able to provide access, uh, at the same time as protecting youth, that certainly could be an approach, at least in the short term.
0: Well, we'll see what comes of this more at uh, cancer.ca. Rob, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Much appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. All the best. Uh, Rob Cunningham is a senior policy analyst for the Canadian Cancer Society, one of the groups involved in this press conference today, urging the federal government to take some action here. So they say this is different for a few reasons. Uh, that for one, when it comes to nicotine gum or nicotine patches, it typically hasn't been the tobacco companies that have been making those products. Uh, but this one is. Zonic is made by what's technically, I guess, a sister company of, of Imperial Tobacco. Uh, and the way these poaches are being marketed, they say, is different. So, for example, the promotional material for Zonic uh, that shows uh, that it's available in three flavors Tropic Breeze, Berry Frost, and Chill Mint says, control your cravings fast. Pop it, tuck it, and it tingles. So because this is approved as a natural health product, uh, it can be sold anywhere. So this can be sold in convenience stores. This could be sold right up front. This could be sold next to candy or chewing gum. So there's no minimum age for sale. The company says they have asked retailers to only make it available to adults. Uh, Health Canada says that natural health products are subject to rigorous safety and efficacy standards and that nicotine replacement products are labeled for use in people 18 and older. A spokesperson says in a statement, this authorization gives Canadians who wish to stop smoking one more tool to quit smoking. With the assurance that it meets the same high standards for safety and efficacy as other products that have been authorized as nicotine replacement therapies, so Zonic is classified as a natural health product. It's the same way that uh, gum or the patch has been approved. But you don't typically see nicotine gum, you know, alongside like the uh, the Trident or the the chicklets, right? So this is a tricky one because it does contain nicotine. And nicotine is addictive. So you don't want people who don't use nicotine to take this out. A little pouch that you can tuck in in the side of your mouth. You get the nicotine buzz. You know, that could be tempting to those who don't have anything to do with nicotine, including young people. So is there a way to make this that it's just for 18 and older? I mean, the idea of making anyone who wants to get some nicotine gum or a patch or even something like this... To help control their cravings because they've quit and trying to quit smoking. Like the idea of a a prescription, that seems like a big, big hurdle. You don't want to make it more difficult for people to quit smoking and stay off of cigarettes. I mean, yeah, it'd be better if nobody used nicotine at all. But let's be realistic. Uh, Using these would be far better for somebody than, than smoking cigarettes. So if it's if it's easier for someone to, to get a hold of a nicotine replacement therapy, great. If that means they're quitting smoking. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.